you're listening to the Fearless Business Podcast. You're in the best place to learn about how to grow a business, get more clients, and make more money without fears and limitations, all while having fun in the process. Robin Waite is the founder of Fearless Business, a business accelerator helping coaches, consultants, and freelancers double their income and more. Now here's your host, Robin Waite. Welcome back, everybody. It's the next episode of the Fearless Business Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Waits, the Fearless Business Coach. We've got a fantastic guest today. It's Lee Lefevre, who is the author and co-founder of, uh, uh, sorry, the author of Art of Explanation, the co-founder of Common Craft. And actually, um, that's where I want to start, uh, um, is, is with Common Craft, which is a company known for being the pioneers, pioneers of the explainant video movement. So what does that mean? Uh, you know, in 2007, um, I was a consultant working on online communities, helping businesses understand online communities. That was what was, what it was called then. Uh, now it's more like social media. And uh, my wife joined the company. So we became a two-person company and we're looking for opportunities and saw that there was a lot of misunderstanding about uh, social media, things like wikis and blogs and social networking. And we decided sort of on a whim to start making videos. Uh, YouTube was just starting to take off. And we thought maybe we can, maybe we can hitch ourselves to this ship that's, that's leaving the stratosphere and, and see what happens. And we made these little videos that were meant to be explanations of a wiki, for instance, that our parents could understand. They weren't technical. They weren't a tutorial. They were about um, building a mental model of it and, and perspective. And you know, those videos uh, were immediately viral as soon as we published them. I say it's the 2007 version of viral. That's different than today. <laughs> um, but those videos uh, went everywhere and, and really uh, it changed our lives in fundamental ways. And, and um, those videos are now known as the first explainer videos of the YouTube era. And we became known as explainers uh, sort of overnight. It's amazing because it, you kind of paved the way a little bit there. Because I think like video is almost too accessible these days. It's too easy to create a video. And actually, there's a lot of really rubbish content out there. And I look mm -hmm. at the videos which you've got, some of the examples you've got on your website, and it's like, wow, you can clearly see that you've gone to a lot of like time and effort to produce those videos to a high quality. Um, you know, and uh, it's one of those things which I get is, um, you know, I've got my 1600 YouTube subscribers. And then I immediately get imposter syndrome when I see somebody with like 1.1 million subscribers mm -hmm. but then you're like mm -hmm. actually the quality of them isn't that great so you know quality is always you know much better than quantity isn't it it is um you know one of the one of the things about our story is that uh youtube was responsible for our early visibility um you know we you know just for context we have about fifty thousand subscribers and we have you know 15 million views and during during you know the height of our visibility, we actually chose to stop using YouTube, wow. and uh, the reason was that YouTube was a platform that we didn't control, and we wanted to be in control of our own videos, so we could license them, we could we could make them the home, we could make. Our, our website, the home of the videos. So we gave up the traffic and visibility we were getting to you, from YouTube in order to make our website, commoncraft.com, the home of the videos. And, and part of that is kind of what you say is, 
we're, we're educators essentially. Like we, we're not doing crazy viral videos. We're not, um, you know, super entertaining in that way. Our videos solve a problem. And today on YouTube, you can't compete trying to solve a problem really. Like that's, that's, you know, education doesn't do as well. While there's a, a number of amazing educators on YouTube, I, that's not my point. My point is for, for us and our business, it made more sense to make um, uh, commoncraft.com our home. Well, that's it. It's it's interesting because, like, you know, you've got likes of Gary Vee who always talks about like eyeballs, audiences, like, you know, where it's at and being able mm -hmm. to kind of create your own audience, if you like, on your own website is like a super powerful thing. So you started that business up in what year was it? Um, the video started in 2007. And and what was the kind of trajectory when you kind of left YouTube and started to move them onto your website? Was there like a bit of a lag between that decision and, and then starting to see an uptick in traffic? Yeah. Well, yeah, it was, there was some overlap there. Um, a couple of things were going on. So, um, we, we made the first videos and there was no business model. They, uh, the advertising platform on, on YouTube was not yet there. Um, so we had lots of likes and views and everything, but no money. <laughs> uh, but then we started, we started to get hired by companies to make similar videos. And our, our second client was Google and we made a video called Google docs in plain English. And you can find that on YouTube. Um, and that really took us to a whole new level of visibility when we worked with Google. We even had our logo at the end of the video, which helped a lot. And um, we quickly realized that we uh, were the first movers in this new space and we had a lot of demand, like overwhelming demand. Um, so one of the things we did, which I think your audience might find interesting, is that um, other video producers were starting to say that they did explainer videos as well. So instead of trying to compete head to head with them and maybe get into a price war, um, we saw an opportunity to have a, a blue ocean and created something called the explainer network. And what we did was went out to our competitors and said, we're getting a lot of demand for this. You pay us a monthly fee and we'll put a listing for your business on our website so that when demand comes to us, we'll point them to you. And that allowed us to pick out the best clients. And then the rest of the demand went to the explainer network. And we had at one point up to nine members there who were paying us a monthly fee that was a very lightweight business for us that allowed us to stay in the center of the industry and be a middleman in a marketplace. And for a two-person company working from home, that felt you know, revolutionary at the time. And it, and it went for years. And that was a really po popular part of our business for a while. That's amazing. There's going to be a lot of people listening to like, you know, co consultants who it's, it's kind of like the, the thing you want to get is like some of these big blue chip brands. So how do you go about like, you know, attracting a Google into your sort of client portfolio? It, it really was those, um, the videos, like the videos just made a splash from that first day. That's how they, they were discovered. Um, you know, we've worked with, I mean, <laughs> we're with the Google, Intel, Microsoft, Lego, Ford, like we've worked, literally worked with a lot of the biggest, uh, best known brands out there. And they all came to us. We've, we've never done any sales in that way. And, and it, wow. it relates back to people watching the videos and saying, these guys are doing it differently. They have a different perspective. Uh, and then looking at their product and saying, our product is not understood well enough. We need someone who can help it be understood. And I, I, think, I like to think that um, that is a, an enlightened way to look at things, that it's not just about selling, that I think the path to selling includes understanding, that people don't buy what they don't understand. And um, I think there's a greater emphasis in real explanation, like not just selling.
So it feels like you're kind of the, the business, you know, Common Craft has been sort of fairly organic in the way that it's grown. It's kind of just you've done the right thing and opportunities have kind of come to you. So I'm guessing it wasn't necessarily always like that. You were a consultant before you started at Common Craft, weren't you? So what, yep. what, 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 what was Lee doing beforehand? Sure. Uh, before I became a consultant, I was working in a company. It was actually my first job out of graduate school. I was a data analyst um, at a company uh, in Seattle. And um, at the time, online communities were just kind of becoming a thing in business. And I convinced the people at the company to create an online community program at the company in 1999. Wow. And um, it, we were using Yahoo groups at the time. It was e-groups before that, if anybody remembers that. And uh, that was uh, the first time I felt like that this online community thing is going to be huge. And I did that job until 2003. And then my wife, who Sachi, who is a huge part of everything we do, convinced me to quit that job and become a consultant. She stayed on. We worked. We were. We had this. Uh, worked at the same company, uh, so she stayed on, maintained our uh, healthcare insurance and uh, a solid, uh, you know, revenue stream while I was getting started. And I started um, as an online community consultant in 2003 and did that until 2007 when we started making videos. Well, it's, it was booming. I mean, that was the right time to do it. It's 2003, 2004, when um, Facebook was just, you know, Zuckerberg was kind of in his pants in his dorm room starting to build the first iterations of that. So, you know, and I think even, yeah. you know, things like MySpace were all kicking off, you know, around about then as well. And um, real boom time, I think, in terms of kind of what you were doing. We've had these discussions lately with people saying like, you know, what was it like in those days, and, and Sachi tells people that it was so full of hope and wonder and just like, wow, this the world's changing and this is gonna be amazing. And we just want people to adopt these new tools. And what if everybody could talk on the web? And, and little did we know, little did we know <laughs> <laughs> that we might actually achieve that and that it might actually go in the direction that it has. <laughs> amazing, an amazing um, support that Sachi has been able to give you as well. I think that's like phenomenal. There's probably a lot of people out there who are, well, one would question whether it's wise to go into business with your wife, but sounds like she's also been like a, a cornerstone of the success as well in terms of like, you know, making things happen for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm really fortunate to, to be a partner with her in this. We, we're very different people. She is uh, very detail oriented and very analytical. And I'm very, I'm, I'm more on the creative side. Um, so I'm the one proposing ideas and she's the one squashing them. Um, <laughs> we, <laughs> we, uh, we, were, we often refer to her as the chief party pooper. <laughs> it's a bit like with my DIY at home, I tend to fix something and then my wife comes along and tests it and inevitably inevitably breaks it after a while. So she's chief breaker. Um, <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> what, what advice would you give to, because there's probably a lot of people listening who potentially are, you know, working in uh, family businesses or husband and wife partnerships um, or partner and partner partnerships um, mm -hmm. right now. What, what would be, so have you got any tips or sage advice that you would give them? Um, you know, I think a lot about being in touch with what you value and what your values are. I think that um, inevitably you're going to disagree. You're going to have different versions of, of how to do something. But I think that what really holds you together is, is what you really value and what are the values you're working towards. So an example for us was uh, we really value our independence. Like we don't want to be beholden to anyone. We want to wake up in the morning thinking only about our own problems. And <laughs> that, that kind of knowing that that's a value that is important to us, that helps us both work together to find ways to use that in our business strategies and in our life. 
Um, and, and I think that people sometimes it's too easy for business people to sort of outsource their values to what they see on TV or in magazines and, and think that there's only one way to do it or, the, or that there's even a right way to do it. And I don't think that's true. I think that uh, each of us has values that matter and getting in touch with them and letting those uh, inform how we think about our business is, is, a, is, a, is a good way to do it. There's a there's a great book by Derek Sivers. I can't I can't I can't hmm. for the life of me remember the title of it. But start with why? Uh, no, it wasn't start with that. Was Simon Sinek who did right. start with why? Oh, but, that's um, right. Yeah, no, <laughs> Derek. Um, I can't, oh, I'll, Derek Sivers. Yeah, I'm going to have to have a look actually on my um, my audible because there was a really interesting thing which kind of resonated there. Uh, oh, where is it? Anything you want is called by Derek Sivers. Okay, and he, okay. he's building his business. He built um, CD Baby. And he was building this mm-hmm. business, yep. and um, he always said that he 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 always wanted a small business. His his goal was never to make money. He didn't want to manage people. He didn't really like people, but so he wanted a small mm-hmm. business where he didn't have to manage people. And then, mm-hmm. of course, CD Baby just blew up, you know. And it was uh, they were getting offers from Amazon and all the big wigs and things like that. But mm-hmm. hit the key to what he put it down. The key to his success was always forging his own path and running the business how he wants to do, and never mm-hmm. handing over control. Do you think there's yep. an element as well of like you know what you've done with Common Craft? It's always been like designed and run and built like how you wanted it to be run and built. Oh yeah, hundred um, percent. So in 2008, we were overwhelmed. Like we had a lot of custom projects going on. We were continuing to make our own uh, original videos. So there's an important distinction here. So when we made a video about wikis, that we were not paid for that. That's something we made and we own the copyright to that video. When, when we're hired by Google, we give the copyright to them. So we don't have that. So this really sets up two business models where we have our original work that we own and then services that we create for other people. And so in 2008, people started asking, hey, that Wikis video that you made, can I download that video file? Can I use it in my presentation? Can I use it in my classroom? And we said, sure, you know, pay us a few bucks and we'll give you a digital download of that video. And that really set us on this course of understanding that videos can be a product, that we can make a video once and sell it multiple times. So this became two competitive business models. On the services side, we saw that the only way the business could grow is by hiring more people because people are the ones doing the service, right? That's how the business scales is hiring. On the licensing side, we don't have to do that. The, the intellectual property sells, you know, is the basis of that. That can scale without hiring. So in 2008, we sat down and said, we're going we're gonna to make constraints that force our business to be what we want. One of those constraints was we were never going to have employees. Never. Like that was going to be our constraint. We were always going to work from home. We would not have investors and we would focus on the long term. And it's 20, that was 2008 and it's 2020 now. And those constraints are still in place. Like we've never had employees. We never had any of that stuff. And what that does is I think that constraints are liberating. Constraints allow you to cut the noise and focus on really what you're trying to do. And for us, it meant that when we looked at opportunities for Common Craft, if we have a constraint of not having employees, then we could look at an opportunity and say, well, if that idea works, if it works, are we going to have to hire to do that? (laughs) 
And that is a powerful way to think about business opportunities. And that highlighted this idea of, of making videos a product that we could license and scale and, and earn passive revenue uh, and, and remain a small business. Well, the, the challenge with hiring people is that you have like the doing work, which happens here. You have the creative work that happens here. And, then, and <clears throat> you know, when you're on your own, it, they're joined up together. The moment you hire people, you have this band in the middle, which is for monitoring and checking and management. And that all yeah. takes extra overhead and time. And I think a lot of people sort of underestimate that. I think so. Uh, you know, I say in the book that once, once you cross the employee Rubicon, there's, there's not really any going back. You're living in a different world, whether it's one employee or a thousand, it's just the world becomes a different thing. And, and a lot of businesses that's required. And I do, my point is not that that is a bad thing or, or that it should be avoided. Like companies need employees in most cases. I'm just saying that, that, that there is an opportunity to think a little bit differently. And you're right about overhead. I think that is one of the big things about, about business that people don't really understand when they're getting started is that there's both financial overhead, but there's also emotional and intellectual overhead that happens in business. And it's that, it's that kind of overhead that can, can really uh, mess with your quality of life. Especially with like, you know, the current state of affairs with the pandemic and things like that, you know, mm -hmm. here in the UK, um, a majority of people are actually sort of working from home still, even six months on from the start of the pandemic for us in March. And mm -hmm. you, you can start to see this emotional trauma is starting to filter, you know, eek back out of people that's built up mm -hmm. over the, a number of months. And it creates an enormous number, well, one, a lot of pressure, but a lot of challenges which go along with it, including it's, it's really working true. from home. Yeah, I know. It's it's really um, an amazing, it's really amazing and interesting and, and horrible time out there for a, for a lot of people. Um, but I think that what it's doing uh, in my perspective, my perception is that it's causing people to question some of the, the assumptions they've had in their lives about things like where, where does their happiness actually come from and what really makes them happy and satisfied with their life. And I think that some people are seeing that maybe it's not trying to build the biggest pile of money. Like money matters. We all want more money. I want more money. But is that always where your happiness and satisfaction and quality of life comes from? And I think that people are starting to see once they're at home and not working in a company and, and maybe exploring different ideas that maybe their, happen their, their happiness comes from more time with their kids or their family or more time being independent or, uh, you know, hobbies and control of their time and things like that, that start to matter to them a little bit more. And I think that if someone discovers that that's what, that's where their quality of life comes from, then maybe there's ways that can help them think about their business strategy and how they can build a business that actually supports those values along with satisfied customers and profit. Well, what would you say would be a good, you know, cause obviously you can start to see some of the external symptoms coming to a head in terms of kind of the stresses and strains that, uh, sort of, um, start to pop up when you scale a business, but when mm -hmm. you spot those symptoms, what are some of the first sort of steps that, you know, you could advise people to start taking to reset? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that time is a really important thing to consider. Um, in the, in the book and big enough, I say that time is the new wealth. I think that, um, you know, it, it'll be the re, it'll, it will inform a lot of decisions in the future about what, you know, given a choice of options, what's going to give me more control of my time, I think is really important. And that's, that's hard for people. And I think that getting control of your time might mean um, a more of a willingness to say no, to sell, tell people that, no, I can't do that. or I'm, I'm not going to be able to do that. I just read something yesterday. Um, I think it was from Ryan, Holl a post by Ryan Holiday. It was saying, um, you know, one of the easy ways to do that is to say, you know, I have a rule. I have a rule right now that I'm not doing that. 
and that kind of is a way to, to inform people that I, I'm working within a strategy. This is not personal to you. I'm, I'm working on a project that I have a rule now where I'm not doing that. Um, and the other thing is to, um, you know, think about how you can use your calendar and your schedule to reserve time. To, to make free time by marking off time as, as unstructured time for you to be able to, to have that quality of life that you want. It's, um, I, I, it's kind of almost like saying yes to yourself as well. So obviously I'm, you know, I, I work from home. My wife's now working from home, obviously as a result of lockdown. And I just found that, you know, sometimes that, that booking time out for myself means going down to the wave for a little surf, you know, and, and it means mm-hmm. taking a morning or an afternoon out, but to spend like quality time with me. Cause I mm-hmm. think when you're kind of, you know, literally walking from my office into the house, it's, it's like you walk from kind of busy working life into busy family life, which can sometimes be a little bit like a war zone, you know, with just children running around. I've got a six and a four year old Lee. So, you know, you can imagine sure, sure. <laughs> and a dog as yeah. well, like coming to meet me in. Yep wife asking about, you know, tea and stuff like that. And I'm just like, I have no idea what's going on here. <laughs> sure. Into a different mode, don't you? Um, yes. So, so something which you talk about as well is like the quality of life as, as a shareholder value feels a little bit like, you know, there's something ingrained there. So what, what explain to me what you mean by that? Yeah. Um, you know, we realized early on that we were a two person company and we didn't have employees. We didn't have investors or, and, and that nobody really knew what, besides us, nobody really knew what was happening at Common Craft. And we realized that, you know, normally if you're building a company, you have shareholders and they're informed about what you're doing. And your goal is to produce value, maximize shareholder value. That's one of the things that the businesses are supposed to do. And as a two-person company, we realized we're the only shareholders and that we get to decide. We can decide what value to maximize. It doesn't have to be money. Sure, we want to, we want to, to earn a living, but what if we made quality of time a shareholder value and made it part of our strategy? And, and that's really what I mean by that is, is not just thinking in terms of big business if you're just a small company and thinking about you have control, like you can decide what shareholder value man, uh, matters to you. Maybe it's not working on Fridays. <laughs> you know, there's, there's lots of, lots of opportunities for, uh, for thinking like that, I think. Amazing. So, uh, and in terms of like, you know, where, where's the business at sort of currently? I mean, do you have employees or is it still just the two of you? <laughs> no, no, no employees. So Common Craft right now is a membership service. So we have a library of uh, original videos. That's a hundred. We're just actually publishing our 114th video today. Um, that's about uh, how to communicate clearly in a presentation. Um, and uh, edu- our, uh, let's see, educators, school districts, universities, organizations of all types become members of Common Craft to access our videos. And they can download them, embed them, or display them from the website. Uh, we also license our visuals that appear in the videos, which we have our own brand of, of how our videos look. And we started licensing our uh, the artwork so that people could potentially make their own videos or use the use the artwork in other projects. So those are the true big reasons people become members of Common Craft. I'm going to ask a really nerdy question, and I hope this isn't too left field. Did you, so when you when you first sort of made the decision to move away from YouTube, did you then have to? Is it was it you who invested the time to understand and learn the technology and then kind of rebuild it the platform from the ground up? Sure. Um, I'm not that technical. I'm not a, I'm not a developer. Um, while we have not had employees, we often work with contractors. Okay. Um, the back end of Common Craft is hosted by a company called Wistia, 
that uh, your yeah. people might have heard of. Yeah. Um, we go back a long time with Wistia. We're good friends with those those guys. Um, uh, so Wistia does the hosting, and it, it wasn't. It was, you know, not not terribly hard to use their API to run our system inside CommonCraft. Um, so it was a matter of of um, using their tools essentially to to get the basics going. Do you um? So I, I was a totally nerdy question. I was just intrigued. That was all. So yeah, um, <clears throat> when so when businesses are sort of growing too big, do you think there's also a right time for a business to kind of just retreat and you know shrink back down to a you know, it's, it's former glory of being a small, agile, fun, you know, exciting business again. You know, I think it's different for everyone in every business. I, one of the things I like to say is that um, I think that there's sh- that, that people who are pursuing big businesses and have big dreams and are, and, you know, are doing the entrepreneur, you know, thing as, as, as hard as they can. I, that's admirable. I think there should be more of that. My message is not that people should not be building big businesses. That's kind of absurd. Uh, <laughs> my message is just that it's, that there are choices that that's not required. There are other ways to look at it. Um, but I have, I, I, I do see businesses sometimes um, overexpand and then contract. Um, you know, we did a video for Lego um, years ago. That was an internal video, and I actually was very fortunate to go over to Billund, Denmark, and meet with them and learn about their strategy. And one of the big strategic things, one of the biggest strategic mistakes they made was to overexpand their selection. It, it became where the the pieces started not to interoperate as well. Uh, and they saw that, oh, we could sell a lot more, but they also, they compromised the, the really core of their product. And they, they came along and just wiped all that out and returned back to um, the sort of core business business for them, which was their interoperability. Um, so that's, that's just one example of a big business that did that. But uh, like I said, there, there's no hard and fast rules. I think it's really up to the, the people who are running the business and, and the, the market. What would you say, because you've been on quite a journey over the last sort of 20 plus years now and, and the businesses or the business which you've run, what would you say was your sort of biggest personal challenge through through that time? <laughs> uh, you should ask Sashi about that. She can tell you all about it. Um, <laughs> she is, she's like, <laughs> I mean, you know, she, yeah, it's a long, it's a long story about her being our sort of rudder or our rock and me being like the petulant child who's not never satisfied. <laughs> um, I think that um, choosing to be small was a challenge for us because we knew that we were leaving money on the table. And in order for that to make sense, the decisions we were making needed to work. Like, and I've always had this, this question in the back of my mind, is it working? Is the, did, did we do the right thing? Is this actually working or is it just working temporarily? And I always fear that it's too good to be true or something and that, that we don't know it and that we're digging ourselves a hole that we're going to discover in five years and, and not be able to do anything about it. Um, so far, that's not the case, but I think I just have a lot of anxiety about that, that kind of idea. I, I think that's really common though in, in well, most businesses, you know, or most, most business yeah. owners, because you, you always worry, oh gosh, at some, are they going to find me out, Lee? Are they, they, they going to know at some point? That, you know, <laughs> it's it, like, is, it is that imposter <laughs> thing, right? <laughs> all, all the success, um, the books, you know, the great client results and things like that. But no, it's all been a charade all this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm working on that. I think we are, we're all working on that. But good days and bad days. I tell the story in the book that... Um, I used to get 
Well, every time someone becomes a member of Common Craft, an email is sent that says, hey, this person is a member at this level. And those emails govern my day. I have a, When there's a lot of them, I have a good day. And if there's none of them, I have a bad day. And Sachi was like, you got to stop. You got to stop getting those emails. We got to cut those off. You need to get your head out of the day, out of the data and start focusing on the future. And that's what I did is I don't get those emails anymore. And that was a way for me to kind of not be so focused on the day to day and focus on the bigger picture. Well, that's it. It's a little bit like, um, I don't know if you're on a weight loss program and you weigh yourself every day, well, you can kind of gain or lose six pounds up to six pounds in body weight, like just throughout like each day, you know, if you're checking for those emails each and every day, it's like, you don't actually see the bigger picture, which is like, well, actually we've lost, you know, know, 15 pounds over the course of a month or something, you know, and you average it out. So it's super yeah. important. I talk about it as like a, um, having that one degree focus point. If you're so focused on just one thing, you've actually, you're missing 359 degrees of other stuff going on. <laughs> Good point. I like that. <laughs> so super important. And, uh, and yeah. uh, there's another thing which you raised there, which is um, also massively important, very relevant as well to our audience. Cause um, you know, I, I always talk about um, like not every client is the right client just cause they've got a you know big wallet full of cash. Like mm. you don't have to take mm-hmm. everybody on. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of people kind of get into bidding wars to get clients on board, especially sort of freelancing consultants. Like they want to take every single client on board because to them, it's important to pay their mortgage and put food on their table. And it's like, that's not the right reason to take a client on. It's got to be because you can get, you know, great results for them. You love working with them, you know, mm-hmm. and yeah, okay. They can afford your services. Great. But they're also going to treat you with respect as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, that 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 makes me think of this idea of sustainability and, and being able to be in a business that you're able to do for as long as you want. Um, I think that a lot of times people get into business and it's not something they're passionate about or not something they're interested in, but they just see the money. And they, they, they realize pretty quickly that the money is not worth it if, if their quality of life is not, is not good for them or healthy. Um, and, you know, I mean, being able to choose clients is a privilege. Not everybody has that ability, but I think that's part of sort of a maturing company is being able to understand and, and get a sense when you talk to people, like, is this going to be a good client? Uh, something someone told me early on, and this is not a hard and fast rule, but I, I always remember it is that if people are nitpicky in the beginning with the initial contract, they're probably going to be nitpicky about everything else. 100%. <laughs> we used to get that all the time as well. It's like, no, assess and qualify your prospective clients to the cows come home. And then we always operate like a three, three flag system. So if they get three red flags along the way through what they say or how they behave, how they show up, then mm-hmm. no, it's, that's it. You're out. <laughs> you, you, yeah. you, haven't yeah. time. you haven't passed selection. And it's, it's the best way to be because you end up with the best clients. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that, that's where that sustainability comes in. Maybe you have a long-term relationship with them uh, and it's people you enjoy working with. And that's really the, yeah, it's really a great thing. So what does the future look like for Common Craft then? Yeah, um, we're going to keep making videos and build our library. You know, every, t- every time we publish a video, it's like adds value for our members. That's one of the reasons they stick around. Um, so we're going to keep making videos and uh, we're doing courses. We, we like, one of the things that Pete, we really love is that our work has inspired people to make their own videos. So we're trying to make that easier for them. We, I mentioned the, the visuals that we call cutouts. We also do online courses that t- teach people about how to make their own explainer videos. And uh, I think we're gonna do more of that because I, you know, as a two person company, we can only reach so far. I personally want there to be more explainers in the world. I want people to be comfortable 
uh, you know, with a, an approach that focuses on explanation and, and we're going to do more of that. And, and on the personal side, I love writing. Um, I, I want to write more books and um, big enough, you know, it's my second book and, and I'll be, I'll be uh, working on another one here before long. I think of comic craft as my day job and writing books is my sort of side hustle. Yeah, that's the way I. Th- it's the best way to think of like um, books. Writing a book is because it is quite a big sort of. It's an energetic process that takes sort of months to give birth to a book, and it's like that's right. Imagine, God, it'd be so stressful if that was like your day job, just writing all day long. I'd just be. I'd feel under so much pressure for it. Like it's much easier when you just like client comes along, gives you a bit of inspiration. Oh yeah, I just write about that. You know, it's 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 yeah. so much easier. So yeah, actually, what happens is you write it, and then you get the inspiration, and you can't go back and change it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. That's that's free right there. So, <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, so big enough was um, it was released on fifteenth of September. It sounds like things are going well with that. So, give us a quick. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you've given a bit of an insight into kind of what what big enough is about. So, give us a quick mm-hmm. synopsis of kind of the book. Yeah, yeah. So the subtitle is "Building a Business That Scales with Your Lifestyle." Um, the backbone of the book is really our story from two thousand seven to the current day, and it goes through all the business models that we tried, some successfully, some unsuccessfully, uh, to build a business that reflects the the life that we want to lead. And uh, while it's our story, I think there's a lot of interesting perspectives about thinking about business not only as a money machine, but as something that can improve your lifestyle and your quality of life and seeing that there's value there and there's respect in being able to um, think about business that way. It's that bigger is not always better. And for people who are, who are thinking about that, I think the book is a nice short guide to, to seeing new opportunities. Um, it's only the official length is 176 pages. So it's a, it's a short book. I say that if, if you write a book called big enough, you better be succinct. <laughs> Definitely. And also like people don't have much time these days to kind of read the thick tomes of books, which, I mean, you can see the, how thick some of the books are behind me. It's just like, yep. At the time that's why I, with, with my book it's like 100 pages job done small small short haul flight that's it you know yep nice exactly. exactly so um people yeah. can uh obviously can they find that on amazon have you got a website set up for the book yes yeah it's on amazon um it's on all the all the major book websites you can find links to the book links to all the things at bigenough.life that's the book's URL is bigenough.life. Uh, the book that also points to my website, my personal website for writing is leelafever.com. And Common Craft is at commoncraft.com. And uh, one last thing, I'm, I'm fortunate to have a name that doesn't have any competition on social media. So uh, I am at Lee Lefever, uh at most of the major platforms. <laughs> Good man. I, you Google me and I said Kitsap soccer coach somewhere in the States. And it's really <laughs> annoying because occasionally he's up there on the t- same page as me. It's just two Robin Waits. It's so frustrating. Did you, did you say Kitsap? I think it's Kitsap, the name of the... I don't yeah, know. that's a, it, there, um, there's a county near us called Kitsap County. So I wonder if it's Oh, well, there. maybe, maybe. <laughs> go in, Washington knock State. on his door, tell him to take his website <laughs> down so that I could be number one. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> God, wouldn't that be funny? Uh, excellent. So I'd encourage everybody to go and check out the book, definitely. So bigenough.life. Um, obviously, we'll, we'll share all of the um, links into the show notes as well. Um, and do go and check out the courses on Common Craft. So... Um, whether people need the embeddable um, explainer videos, um, but the courses might be relevant, obviously, to a lot of the coaches, consultants, and people like that who are looking to kind of yeah. explain what they do to people because um, we need yeah. more of that in the world, definitely. 
Cool. Yep. Uh, Lee, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, we have our, our final um, question for you, which I, I prepped you earlier on for. So hopefully you've got something for that. So we're going to hop into the Fearless Business Time Machine and you get to punch in the date of X number of years in the past. Um, and you're going to go and have a word with yourself. So when is it? Which year is it? And what are you going to say? Yeah. Um, so before I think it was like, 10, uh, 10 years back. So I think that uh, one of the things that we learned along the way that I would like to remind myself back then is that um, there's no bulletproof business model, like that there's nothing that you're going to create that's going to last forever. And that you can, you should always be thinking about what's going to replace that business model, what's going to come along, that's going to represent the right opportunity that's that's next. And a lot of times, it might be something that means going with the flow and not pushing back against where where things are going and saying like oh the market's changing i'm going to i'm going to fight that oftentimes it means going with the flow and being a small business it means that you're agile you know you can make those decisions and that's be- the beauty of being sort of big enough is being able to turn on a dime when things change like when there's a big pandemic that comes through and you've got to figure out how to adapt to it when you're small you can do it yeah, it's like the difference between, um, you know, turning an oil tanker and turning a small little speedboat, you know. Um, yep. Interesting, actually. I, I don't normally uh, sort of ask a question post my last question, but I'm going to if that's okay. So I could see something like virtual reality really enhancing what you do with Common Craft. Mm-hmm. But do you mm-hmm. think there's a danger that something like artificial intelligence could replace it? Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, it's true with with Google. Google takes over whole industries, you know, uh, with a, with a clickable button. Practically, um, I think that if you if you watch our videos, um, what we're doing, I think, requires a level of nuance that I'm not sure that AI is capable of. Like AI can probably do tutorials, like how do you build a model in a 3D tool or something like that. But we're, we're storytellers, you know, we're, we're telling stories that are not about where to, what to click. We're telling stories that help people build a mental model of an idea that, that changes their perception of something. And maybe someday AI could do that. But I think that uh, we're much more on, on we're operating at, a, at an, an intellectual level. And I don't mean that like academic intellectual. I just mean that at a level of intellect that's human, that I think it's hard for machines. Yeah, I, I I totally agree with you, actually. It's a fantastic answer. And I think um, it's going to be interesting, certainly, to see where the, all of those different technologies develop. You know, tw- 20 years, we're still at the tip of the iceberg of the internet age and like technology. So it's going to be amazing. Um, listen, Lee, it's, it's been a, such a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking about your book and the business as well. We've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Robin. It was great. Bye.